Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, I'm Nate, and this is Timeline Tapes, the podcast made by the YouTube channel Timeline. Our YouTube channel Timeline is full of hours of history documentaries, but we know that you can't always sit back and watch one of them, so here we turn them into podcasts instead. In this one, we're investigating one of the most tyrannical figures of the Bible, King Herod of Judea, immortalized for his massacre of the innocents, which allegedly murdered hundreds of infants, seeking to execute the newborn Jesus Christ. But was any of it real, or is it a case of biblical folklore? The voice of the show is actor John Meachie, and it features a range of interviews with experts of ancient Roman history and archaeology, and was produced by the BAFTA-nominated documentary filmmaker Francis Beringen. We know more about Herod than we do about Jesus. His life and times were faithfully recorded in extraordinary detail by an historian named Josephus. Under Herod, the land of Judea became an enterprise zone, and the Jewish faith so fashionable that even some Romans took up the one God idea. But there was a problem, one that right from the start blighted the reign of the king of the Jews. He wasn't Jewish. Herod was an Arab. His mother was a princess from the rose-red city of Petra in what is now Jordan. His father was an Arab diplomat from a desert tribe that had been forced into Judaism at the point of a sword. To real Jews, Herod came from a family of heathens. They'd never call him king. One way or another, he was never accepted by the Jewish nation as the legitimate ruler over the land and over the Jewish nation, simply because the Bible said that only King David and one of his dynasty can rule the Jews. Herod was born in 73 BC. At that time, Judea was part of the Roman Empire, but ruled from Jerusalem by a popular Jewish royal family, the Hasmoneans. The ultra-religious Hasmoneans were direct descendants of King David. Herod's Arab father was their prime minister and a statesman of genius, a man the Romans could do business with. The boy Herod grew up in Jerusalem, playing in the corridors of power, but he might as well have been in Rome. His father was on first-name terms with Julius Caesar, who bestowed on him Rome's greatest honor. And that itself is a distinctive uh, mark of uh, being a family that's on the rise, perhaps even on the make. In his teens, Herod was already being groomed for power. The key to his future success would be his relationship with Rome, 
and that started with a close friendship with Rome's man in the East, playboy and politician Mark Antony. Mark Antony drank a lot, laughed loudly, made jokes, and he was also man of action. Though Herod thought much more than, than Mark Antony, Mark Antony only uh, acted without <laughs> further thinking, but uh, still they, they went together pretty well, I think. Herod got his first taste of power at the age of 26, when a rebellion broke out in the wild northern frontier territory of Galilee. The locals refused to pay taxes, and the Romans sent Herod in as governor. He was efficient and brutal. He was very good at taxation, and he was also very good at um, catching and executing uh, terrorists who were active at the time. Uh, Josephus speaks of brigands, as the word Josephus usually uses, and of course you can wonder, were they criminals out plain and simple, or were they nationalist criminals who were thinking of taking advantage of the Roman problems to reestablish some sort of Hasmonean sovereignty? It's hard to know, but in any case, Herod is said to have caught them and executed them, and thereby even gotten into trouble some with the Jewish authorities in Jerusalem who were upset about this youngster. He was in his mid-twenties at the time, or perhaps a little later, um, taking the law so much into his own hands that he was also executing people and not just arresting them. But killing Jews, even if they were terrorists, didn't make him too popular at home. The aristocracy of Jerusalem demanded a trial to punish the young upstart. But the Romans put pressure on the courts and the case was dropped. Herod was now their man. It has clearly demonstrated that Herod is a man of action and that he acts really decisively and, and can seize the moment. Uh, and those kinds of qualities probably are what uh, endeared him to Roman interests. Herod was appointed Roman governor in Syria. He also took his first wife, Doris. Their son was the apple of Herod's eye. But after six years of marriage, he banished mother and child from his household. He had fallen for a Jewish princess. Marianne, uh, would uh, have been a very young girl at this time. As I reconstruct the chronology, she was probably only uh, 13 or 14 at the most at the time. Mariami would be marriageable at 16, but to Herod, she was worth waiting for. She was royalty, the granddaughter of the Hasmonean king. By marrying a princess, he hoped to gain a place among the Jewish aristocracy. Her blood would guarantee their children the legitimacy he craved. Mariami was an investment in his future. What status he had, Herod owed to his link with Rome through Mark Antony. But the Roman had fallen under the spell of the world's most desirable woman, Cleopatra. Mark Antony was responsible for Rome's interest in the Eastern Mediterranean, including Judea. But while he cavorted in Egypt, he neglected his military duties. Herod watched in dismay as the land of the Jews was invaded. The Parthians, a superpower to rival the Romans, occupied Jerusalem and installed their own Jewish puppet king. Herod acted decisively. He fled. Herod rode out to rally neighboring rulers to organize a counterattack. If Judea were no longer part of the Roman Empire, Herod's dreams of power and influence would come to nothing. Herod makes a, a lightning escape out of Jerusalem, heading southeast towards Petra, but Petra refused to allow him in. 
and so he went to Alexandria, where he had a, a meeting with Cleopatra. Herod leaves Alexandria, boards a ship in the middle of winter uh, for Rome to seek Rome's help in this desperate situation. Even pirates stayed off the Mediterranean after the autumn. News of Herod's daring voyage reached Rome before he did. When Herod appeared in the Senate House, his Roman masters were already impressed. This crucial meeting would change his life forever. When he got to Rome, the, the two most powerful people in Rome were Mark Antony and Octavian. He had had a long and, and quite satisfactory connection with Mark Antony. He had had virtually no contact with Octavian. And Mark Antony was, in effect, his advocate in Rome. Herod had never been to Rome, but he must have appeared very confident. He traded on his father's good name to lend weight to his story. You knew my father, and he was your man in Judea, and now he's dead, and everybody else is dead, and the Parthian's man is king of Judea. He pleaded for continued support for the Hasmonean royal family, but the senators didn't care who ruled Judea. They just wanted it Roman again, the Parthians defeated and a hard man in place to keep order. I think it was a, a complete surprise to him, but in fact, uh, the Senate preferred to take the action that Octavian and Mark Antony had proposed. Herod's diplomatic mission had become a job interview. The Senate pledged military support to remove the Parthians from Judea, but they were not going to restore the rule of the Hasmoneans. The hard man they needed was before them. Herod would be the new king of the Jews, whether the Jews liked it or not. In 40 BC, the Romans made Herod king of the Jews. Before he could take the throne, he had to rid Judea of the Parthian invaders. But the Jews preferred the king the Parthians had installed. Herod was not welcome. With Roman military help, Herod began a long campaign against his own people. And it was only in um, the summer, to be safe, let's say, of 37 BCE. In other words, just about three years after the time when he actually was given the crown in Rome, that he was actually able to take his capital and set himself up as king. It was a hollow victory. The Roman oppressors might have named him king of the Jews, but to his subjects, only a descendant of King David was eligible. His authority was constantly in question. In his bid to gain legitimacy in the eyes of his people, Herod had now married his Hasmonean princess, Mariami. She bore him two blue-blooded Jewish sons. But there was a problem. Herod had deposed Mariami's grandfather to become king. He adored her. She loathed him. As a result, Herod was racked with jealousy and paranoia. Whenever he went on a dangerous mission, he left instructions for Mariami to be killed if he failed to return. Then, as now, Jerusalem was a city dedicated to worship. The real power in the land was held by the religious authorities on the Temple Mount. It was the site of King Solomon's temple, the Holy of Holies. To shore up his position, Herod desperately needed to win over the politician priests. He proposed Mariami's younger brother, Aristobulus, for the job of high priest at the Temple of Jerusalem. The teenager was, of course, a Hasmonean princeling. When the boy first officiated at the altar, jubilant crowds swarmed to the Temple Mount, swooning with delight and hailing the return of the Jewish royals. 
As a non-Jew, Herod couldn't even watch from the back. This appears to lead to a certain amount of jealousy on, on Herod's part. And uh, Josephus tells an account of a uh, celebration uh, which is followed by a pool party in uh, his palace down in Jericho. Jericho, the lush, steamy weekend destination for the Jerusalem jet set and a royal resort, was about to become the setting for a hideous murder. As his family settled in, Herod, crazed by his lust for power, formulated his plan. It was in this very swimming pool that the royals and their friends splashed and chatted, while a group of muscular guards played what must have looked like a boisterous game in the deep end. Aristobulus, darling of the masses, was in their midst. On Herod's orders, his wife's beloved brother was held under the water and drowned. As the court went into mourning, Herod was summoned to Mark Antony to answer a charge of murder. The dead boy's mother was bent on revenge, and she'd called on an old friend for help. Cleopatra was only too happy to demand that Mark Antony punish Herod, preferably with death. That would leave her free to take over his territories, and in particular, the oasis of Jericho, once an Egyptian possession. In the event, Mark Antony let his old friend Herod off the hook, but appeased Cleopatra by giving her Jericho as a gift. With its citrus groves, date wine industry, and balsam plantations, Jericho was a jewel in Judea's crown. Rather than occupy her new possession, Cleopatra leased it back to Herod at vast expense. For three years, it cost him almost half the national income. Once again, the impotent Herod was humiliated and reminded of his reliance on Mark Antony and Rome. Cleopatra's ambition is simply to reassert the control of Egypt over the whole of this region, as was true uh, in much earlier years. Herod resented Cleopatra's hold over Mark Antony, and she delighted in baiting him. When she came to Judea to survey her properties, she demanded that he escort her and even tried to seduce him. Herod was the only man known to have resisted the world's most irresistible woman. Right from the start of his reign, Herod was a man in search of a public relations miracle. Having destroyed Jerusalem in a ghastly siege, he set about rebuilding it with vigor. His architects went to work on a project so monumental, it remains to this day the most famous landmark in Israel, the Temple Mount. It was the, the most elaborate, lavish, monumental, whatever, all the superlatives building. It's really a genius idea, and, and here, no doubt, Herod was monumental. The original temple built by King Solomon was the most sacred place in the Jewish world. Over 900 years old, it was a virtual ruin. While as a non-Jew he would never be allowed to enter it, Herod was bent on giving his people a new temple in a glorious setting. But it wasn't easy. The priesthood required him to lay out all his building materials before work began. Josephus says that when Herod began the project, there was a lot of suspicion on the part of Jews that he would manage to destroy things and not to rebuild them, because in the process of renovating, you have to destroy as well. And he tried to allay their doubts, and Josephus even has him uh, betraying some um, resentment at them. He said, look, where were the Hasmoneans all these years? They were high priests. They didn't even attempt such a project. 
It took Herod eight years to create a new Holy of Holies and dramatically expand the area of the Temple Mount itself. He surrounded it with colonnaded walkways and dominated the southern end with a building that was part palace and part shopping mall, a vantage point from which to keep an eye on the turbulent priests below. The site was opened up to all, Jews, Gentiles, and even women, making it a center for business as well as devotion. This is a street built by Herod the Great along the Temple Mount wall. This was the main street of Jerusalem of that time. Uh, people used to walk here from the north to the south. People used to cross it on the way to Temple Mount. It was like the Fifth Avenue of those days. And no doubt that Jesus, as a Jew, coming from the Galilee with his father and later on spent time here in Jerusalem, no doubt that he walked here as far as we can judge. This is the area where the money changers used to be. Sometimes they took their tables and walk up to Temple Mount to make a better business. And that's what Jesus talked about when he tried to follow them to Temple Mount back to the market area that was here. The rabbis, of whom we have their uh, literature beginning in the, let's say, the third and fourth and fifth centuries of the common era, who have every reason in the world to say nasty things about Herod, and they do, do say lots of nasty things about Herod, nevertheless say on a couple of occasions that whoever has not seen the temple which Herod built has never seen a beautiful building. So they grudgingly, but nevertheless, they say it. The Temple Mount has been fought over ever since. Herod's Jewish constructions were replaced by invaders with newer faiths. At present, Jews and Christians are unable to visit what is now an exclusively Islamic site. Jews still worship at Herod's Western Wall. Rebuilding the temple was undoubtedly a shrewd move and an expensive gesture by the new king. I can imagine that the main motivation was political, interior politics. I'm not sure that Herod the Great was a great believer in God. But all Herod's palaces featured Jewish ritual baths, and his households observed strict religious law. Herod may not have been of pure Jewish blood, but is it possible that his rebuilding of the temple was motivated by belief? Uh, from my point of view, Herod was a convinced Jew, uh, and he saw this as a way of, of uh, both making a mark on, on Judaism and of uh, winning support of Jewish authorities and of the Jewish people at large. By the middle years of his reign, Herod was exhausted, balancing the need to please Rome, placate Jerusalem, and monitor palace gossip for threats to his throne meant there was no rest. Then in 31 BC, the very root of his power was threatened. Simmering ill feeling between Mark Antony and the Emperor Octavian erupted into civil war. If his friend Mark Antony were to lose, Herod feared he too would fall from favor. In September of that year, Octavian defeated Mark Antony and Cleopatra at the great sea battle of Actium. But Herod wasn't there to support his patron. Herod should have been there, uh, would have been there, uh, and would have been there on Mark Antony's side, in effect, on the losing side. Uh, had Mark Antony not wanted uh, Herod to intervene with the Nabataeans. Herod was kept busy in the desert fighting a small border war. Now he faced a crucial decision. The man who had made him king and to whom he owed everything had been defeated. His future hanging in the balance, Herod once again braved winter seas to visit Octavian, the new ruler of the Roman world. 
If he was to remain king of the Jews, he would have to perform a spectacular U-turn. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Welcome back to Timeline Tapes. We've just left King Herod as he prepares to betray his friendship with Mark Anthony and seek an alliance with Octavian, the new leader of Rome. In 30 BC, Herod's patron Mark Antony took poison and died in his lover's arms. He did so knowing that Herod, the man he had called his friend, had already betrayed him. No sooner had Mark Antony been defeated at Actium than Herod sought a new alliance with his enemy Octavian. Herod's future rested on his ability to win the patronage of the new power in Rome. He goes explicitly without any of the paraphernalia of his royal status, without his crown, without his robes. He goes in effect cap in hand uh, before Octavian. And he says, I, in effect, I make no apology. I was a supporter of Mark Antony's. I should have been at Actium. I would have been fighting on Mark Antony's side. I was loyal to Mark Antony during that whole period. But now, he said, I will offer my loyalty to you. I will be loyal from now on to Octavian. Uh, and the same kind of loyalty that I showed to Mark Antony will now be shown to you. Uh, Octavian surprisingly in some ways, accepts the uh, offer and confirms him in his kingship, offers him more lands to, uh, to rule, adds to the size of Judea right at that moment in Rhodes as a response to this rather abject sort of picture of Herod uh, on his knees before Octavian. 
It appeared to have been yet another triumph for Herod's silver tongue. But Octavian's remarkable open-handedness towards the friend of his old enemy may have had more to do with chests of silver. Octavian was bankrupt. Herod came in with uh, at least 700 talents of pure silver. One talent is uh, 30 kilos, as much as one man can carry. Huge amount of money. And <laughs> it, from, from this background, it's quite, it is quite obvious that it was not a problem for Augustus to <laughs> keep Herod in power. One of the main items in the file which shows that Herod was a wonderful diplomat was the way he was able to save himself time and again after he had been backing the wrong Roman. Herod had a new sponsor and even more territory. He returned to Judea in triumph, but his joy was to be short-lived. There were rumors that his wife, Mariami, the woman he loved more than anything, had a lover. And Herod became convinced that in his absence, uh, Mariami had had an affair uh, and was in fact trying to uh, promote the interests of uh, somebody with whom she had had an affair and uh, he seems unable to deal with those suspicions in any uh, rational, intelligent way. Herod had Mariami executed. It may have been a politically useful marriage, but Herod was also obsessed with her. He took to the wilderness in despair, his will to live extinguished. He goes into a deep, deep depression and himself almost dies. Uh, as a result of that very tragic incident, something that he seems never to have quite gotten over. With the death of Mariami, Herod had reached a turning point. Henceforth, he abandoned all efforts at impressing the Jewish elite with his Hasmonean connections. He could never change what he was, but he could glorify his name with monuments that would last forever. The main thing to remember is that kings in antiquity had two avenues of getting themselves a place in posterity. They could either do wars, or they could build, or they could do both. And Herod as a vassal king was not allowed to be involved in wars. He had no option of a foreign policy of his own. The only thing he'd do was build, and he built massively. The more difficult the location or outrageous the engineering required, the happier it made Herod. There had long been a mountaintop stronghold overlooking the Dead Sea at Masada. Herod transformed it into a luxurious palace complex that appeared to taunt gravity. 450 meters high, flat top mountain. Uh, un uh, unbelievable sight, absolutely. Um, with its uh, northern palace, always in shade, with, with a sauna <laughs> hanging uh, on the cliff with a beautiful view over the Dead Sea. Just marvelous play of uh, environment uh, and, and uh, space and classical architecture. Herod was a creative man with an eye for form and function and the resources to realize his most outrageous visions. He required his architects to think the unthinkable. This is one of the quite a few buildings where I claim that the great idea is not in particular the one that an archi architect brought up. Uh, you have to learn in a school to do it this way. 
it's just a, a logic and imagination together, and uh, Herod had both of them in tones. <laughs> but the greatest example of creativity from this most destructive of kings was a feat of engineering so audacious it places him amongst the greatest builders of the ancient world. On a coastline without any natural foothold, he created a vast artificial deep sea port. What Herod did was unprecedented not only among the Jewish people, but rarely repeated by anybody else, including the vast and mighty Roman Empire. Avner Rabban of Haifa University believes Herod's port of Caesarea should be counted amongst the seven wonders of the world. I mean, the pyramids are by far more, more protruded, more, more impressive, but much less functional. Herod knew that to become a great trading nation, Judea had to use the Mediterranean. He could then steal business from Alexandria, but first he needed to change Jewish thinking about the sea. To build an harbor of such a scale, following a very terrestrial, non-maritime tradition of his Jewish people, that this is what made this harbor so unique. The secret of his extraordinary design lay in a Roman innovation volcanic ash cement that hardened in seawater. Herod's engineers filled hundreds of wooden pontoons with the powder and sank them to form the foundations for the new harbor. Today, only divers can examine the remaining traces of the ancient artificial reef. They have survived for 2,000 years, but above the surface, there is little left to see. First of all, forget about the modern one. Just in the middle of nowhere, in, uh, in relation to the ancient one. What you have from the ancient one, if you see down here, this nicely uh, cut, flat, what seemed to be bedrock, it's actually the top of the Herodian Mole that continues, or oh, let's say a quarter mile further west, turning half a mile to the north. So it's rather large area, it's about 40 hectares of confined ocean. Until Herod's bold move, a late harvest in Egypt meant grain-carrying ships bound for Rome had to brave winter seas. Now they had a safe haven in which to sit out the storms. It was an instant success. The harbor became a giant cash machine for Judea and a source of pride to Herod. One has to Im imagine what sense of achievement it would be to take a ocean like that, uncontrolled, wild, effective, and uh, disciple it into well-confined, well-protected, beautifully function and instrumental uh, entity to serve the Lord's demand. And the Lord in this particular case was Herod the Great. Caesarea started as a harbor and became a city. It was Herod's ideal world, a secular metropolis where it didn't matter where you came from. Caesarea wasn't just built by Herod, it represented everything he stood for. And so it was a, a city that looked in its uh, direction westwards uh, across the Mediterranean at the same time as it was drawing trade in from the east towards it and, and acting as a great warehouse 
areas. So it's a very uh, liberal city. There are Jews living in the city. There's a small Jewish community, but the city itself is understood to be a city that is built essentially for a Gentile population. Caesarea was and still is a boomtown for the middle classes, commuting to destinations all around the Mediterranean and beyond. I think basically when you look at Caesarea in a big way, Herod built it to be a, uh, a opposite balance, a counterpoint to Jerusalem. And um, you have on the coast Caesarea, and you have inland in Jerusalem, uh, as it were, God's city. You have Caesar city and God's city. The way the rabbis of the Talmud will eventually put it, they will say that Jerusalem, Caesarea, when one goes up, the other goes down. 28 years into his reign, Herod was entitled to feel pleased with himself. He'd rebuilt the city of God and created a city of business. The Romans were pleased and his subjects were rich. But the remaining years of his reign would be characterized by murder and madness. As he reached his 60s, Herod could look back with satisfaction. He'd kept Rome happy, made his nation rich, and built monuments that would last forever. But the future was less certain. Herod couldn't decide who should succeed him, and in his paranoia, became suspicious that his children were plotting against him. In 14 BC, Herod was so desperate for someone he could trust that he brought back a wife and a son he'd banished 30 years previously. Doris and four-year-old Antipater had been thrown out when he wanted Mariami. Now, Antipater would become a front-runner in the battle for the throne. Herod's next two sons, Alexander and Aristobulus, were his children by Mariami. They were also strong contenders, but Herod didn't trust them. They were Hasmonean aristocrats. Part of the background was some snootiness on their part that they, in fact, had been educated in Rome. And he was this provincial type who was getting old and hadn't had a very good education and hadn't really spent much time in the big city at all. I think that was probably part of it. They were named as his successors in his early wills, uh, and it was clear that they would, in effect, uh, in fact, take over. Herod thought they were scheming against them. My guess is that there's probably some truth to that uh, suspicion on his part. Uh, Herod thought that they were trying to win over the support of the army. It didn't help matters that he'd executed their mother. They may have heard the rumors that ever since her death, he'd kept her body embalmed in a jar of honey and that in his madness, he visited her at night to continue their relationship. For years, Herod tried to get along with them but they would always be a threat. In 7 BC, his temper got the better of him and he had the scheming pair strangled. If we want to say something for him in, in his favor, he was a politician and he was, uh, for him it was important to have the power. So everything was related uh, to, as a king to power and so he could kill wife, no brothers, that's not the case, but the sons, friends and so on, and relatives, because he saw that there were some possibilities that they were working against his rule. But things were about to get even darker for the troubled monarch. The Bible tells of three wise men that appeared in Judea in the 34th year of his reign. They brought gifts for the king of the Jews, but it wasn't Herod they had in mind. Matthew tells the account of the uh, Magi who uh, come to Judea seeking a 
new Jewish king. When they do that, they naturally go to Jerusalem. Herod listened with growing fury when they spoke of a star and a prophecy. According to the Gospel of St. Matthew, he played innocent. Go and find out all about the child, and when you have found him, let me know, so that I too may go and do him homage. Well, the story of the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem and the massacre of the innocent infants in Bethlehem is certainly the most famous story about Herod, which people on the street will know. According to the Bible, Herod's soldiers advanced on Bethlehem, but God had warned Joseph in a dream, and the Holy Family escaped to Egypt. The king's revenge was swift. Herod was furious when he realized he'd been outwitted, and in Bethlehem and its surrounding district, he had killed all the male children who were two years and under. Herod was at times a bloody king, but did he order the massacre of the innocents? We only have a few lines in Matthew's Gospel as evidence. The Gospel of St. Luke confirms that Jesus was born in the time of Herod, but doesn't mention the mass killing of the baby boys. Josephus, from whom we know so much about Herod, and who delights in cataloging the king's darker deeds, never mentions the slaughter at all. Somebody like that would seem to be such a monster that other stories like this can easily be made up about him. I myself have some question about whether or not that uh, incident in Matthew actually took place. Herod, the evil tyrant of the nativity story, was certainly guilty of murdering those who threatened his throne. But it is possible that the massacre of the innocents, as told by Matthew, never took place. Whether the details of the story are true or not, there's evidence that in the last years of Herod's reign, he began killing on an unprecedented scale, settling scores and murdering political rivals. The period of Herod's greatest atrocities coincides with his own physical decay. Remember that he is uh, almost 70 years of age. That's a very advanced age for somebody. He must have been a very strong man through most of his life to have survived that long. Now I think the, his whole body is giving, giving up and uh, his mind is perhaps giving up at the same time. The record speaks of a sickness with the hallmarks of an Old Testament plague. Josephus gives a very graphic description of a painful illness focusing on the stomach and also on the mind of Herod. He's going out of his mind, he's going out of his mind in pain, he's stinking. Uh, some versions will tell us about worms as well, and his flesh is decaying. From his deathbed, Herod embarked on an orgy of violence. It began when word reached him that a high-spirited mob had torn down the Roman eagle he had placed provocatively above one of the entrances to the Temple Mount. Some young students took the opportunity at the urging of one of their teachers to remove that eagle from the temple, viewing it as offensive. They did so, uh, and of course Herod's retribution fell very quickly. He executed the students, he executed the, the teacher who was responsible for encouraging them. Uh, it was a rather uh, perhaps unnecessary uh, uh, action on his part, but one that uh, seemed to him essential because it, it uh, challenged his authority. Impatient for power, Doris's son Antipater now tried to mount a palace coup that would put him on the throne. Herod's firstborn, the son he had brought back from exile to succeed him, 
had jumped too soon. His father rallied, finding the strength to order his immediate execution. Herod had just five days to live, but he had a lot more killing to do. All his life he'd been rejected by the Jewish aristocracy, and now he'd get his revenge. In his dying days, Herod ordered Jewish nobles to be brought down to Jericho, where he is, and when he dies, to execute them all. His uh, sister refuses to uh, carry out this command. In his palace, courtiers attended him round the clock. Neither prayers nor potions made any difference. Driven mad by pain, Herod attempted to end his misery with a blunt fruit knife. Like most rulers of the time, Herod had used violence to stay in power. But the insane bloodlust of his last days stands out. 2,000 years after his death, modern science suggests that Herod's violence and paranoia may have been directly linked to his physical disease. At the Veterans Hospital in Seattle, pathologist Jan Hirschman has studied the accounts of Herod's last days. He believes the lurid details mask a description of actual symptoms. Herod's final killing spree might have been the result of acute kidney disease that literally drove him mad. In Josephus's case, he describes Herod as becoming increasingly depressed, actually attempting suicide unsuccessfully, and becoming more paranoid. And all these features have been seen in patients with untreated chronic kidney disease. As Herod's kidneys shrank to half their size, his body would have been engulfed by poisons. He was an enormous amount of discomfort, partly because of the itching, secondly because of the abdominal pain, which again was very severe, Third, because of the movements of his limbs, which again was described as being very uncomfortable. Josephus also speaks of the royal genitals producing worms. Herod's madness is even more understandable. He may have had gangrene of the scrotum. When this gangrene occurs in the genital area, sometimes the surface of the scrotum, the whole skin, sloughs off, leaving bare the material underneath. And for somebody unfamiliar with the anatomy, the male genitalia, the, what is seen after the scrotum is removed is what looks very worm-like. When Herod finally died, he was taken to the only site he'd named after himself. Herodium was a palace sunk in the top of a man-made mountain. Below it, awe-inspiring pleasure gardens where his marble tomb lay waiting, where thousands of soldiers and courtiers waited as he was interred, or may have been. According to Josephus, his golden casket lies somewhere here, but it has yet to be found. Herod's death left a vacuum his heirs couldn't fill. Within a century, the Romans were burning his temple and persecuting the Jews. Perhaps the stability he created is Herod's best monument. I'm sure Herod would have rather have died about seven, eight years earlier than he really did die. Had that been the case, he would have died as someone who kept the peace, built monumental things all over the country which remained, and that last decade of troubles with his family and killing too many people would not have occurred. A man of complex origins, always the outsider, Herod worked tirelessly to unite subjects of all backgrounds. Did he succeed where so many other rulers of his land have failed? With the Gentiles and with the Jews, he achieved a lot. He was the person who could rule this country in the best way. And I, I don't think that uh, in the uh, before and after we had uh, such a personality who could unite uh, such a difficult region. Herod longed for recognition and appreciation, but he achieved neither. 
2,000 years later, in spite of his creative achievements, he is only remembered for ordering an act of cold-blooded murder that may never have happened at all. Thanks again for listening to Timeline Tapes. That's it for our exploration on King Herod, but we'll be back again next week with a story about the secret psychological warfare between Winston Churchill and Franklin Delano Roosevelt. In the meantime, if you can't wait to learn more, just head to our YouTube channel, where we have hundreds of documentaries you can watch. If you want to reach out to Timeline Tapes, you can email us at timeline at little.studios.com, and you can also follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Those are both at TimelineWH. If you enjoyed this show, please subscribe, give us a five-star rating, and write a review, too. I've been Nate Fisher. This has been Timeline Tapes. Let's go down in history together. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.